Welcome to Scaling, Failing and Prevailing, a podcast about helping startups and corporates learn from each other through great conversations. Hi, I'm James Parton and I run the Bradfield Centre in Cambridge, where we help tech companies scale and we host hundreds of free tech events every year. Previously, I've worked in corporate innovation at O2 and Telefonica and have experienced startup to IPO with San Francisco-based Twilio. And I'm Adelina Chalmers. I'm known as the Geek Whisperer. I work with tech companies, helping align the engineers with the vision of the company, as well as organize an annual event called the Cambridge Startup Billion Pound Scale-Up Challenge. The show's into our second year, and we've now gone over 3,000 plays, so thanks to all of our listeners for that. Uh, if you're a first-time listener or, or have been with us since episode one, just, please just take 30 seconds to give us a five-star rating and leave a review on your podcasting platform of choice. It will really help us build awareness of what we're doing. Our guest today is Matt Clayton, the co-founder of Mixcloud. Mixcloud is a popular online music streaming service that allows for the listening and distribution of radio shows, DJ mixes and podcasts. So, uh, yeah, in today's conversation, I really want to ask Matt about the kind of, uh, well, the early days of the, of the company, actually, because the way they've done things is quite unusual compared to the perceived wisdom of how to build a tech startup. So, for example, um, they went 10 years without raising money. Um, they didn't have a CEO for the first 10 years. And, uh, and actually, rather than go to someone like uh, Amazon, they, they actually built their own uh, infrastructure as well. So quite unusual. Yeah, but also I'm interested as a small startup, you know, starting from absolute scratch in Cambridge 12 years ago, I'm interested also to understand how on earth did they get to 20 million monthly active users without much of a marketing budget? And um, I'm going to find out how big their marketing budget was. I'm really pleased to welcome Matt Clayton from Mixcloud to the show. Uh, Matt and I, I think we first met on the conference circuit back in some time. Some, uh, some, some time ago. Yeah, 2000s-ish. <laughs> Um, so welcome. Thanks for taking the time to come on. Pleasure. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about you and your kind of, uh, your kind of journey to this point in time and a little bit about Mixcloud. Yeah. So my journey, oh, I mean, to be honest, I, I was thinking about this the other day and my journey basically is Mixcloud at this point. Like, um, I've been doing it now for, I think 11 and a half years. And, uh, before that, just winding back, like, um, I was doing consultancy, did a couple, did a quick startup, which to be honest was about six months a year, um, was fine, but I was doing two startups at the same time. Can't recommend that to anyone. Mm. Um, and we ended up sort of merging it and it became Mixout. That was the dominant one. Um, before that, um, did a load of consultancy specifically around Facebook apps back in the day. Um, did electrical engineering um, consultancy before that electrical engineering degree before that so kind of never really went to work for anyone oh. that's basically the backstory of me well are you, you're unemployable then is that what you're saying <laughs> i've never been employed since the age of 20 so probably yes <laughs> so it's a good way to go yeah um i probably am unemployable now <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i think what i'm really looking forward to uh talking to you about is it, when you read all the, the kind of startup books and you read the you know, the, the startup blogs and the podcasts and all of this wisdom that's out there in terms of how you start a tech business, you've actually taken quite a different path in a number of different areas. And, you know, we'll kind of get into that. But um, I mean, where should we start? Should we start about, you know, kind of when you got going, some of the kind of decisions you took about building the tech stack and the infrastructure, you kind of, I guess, bulk the trend somewhat in terms of deciding not to use Amazon or Azure and all of these kind yeah, of cloud providers. We've 
we grew up at an interesting time. Um, I sound like a, a child growing up here, but um, if you think about it, the company's 10, 11 years old. So Amazon, AWS in particular, has hit the market. It's probably like three, four, five years old, I'm guessing at this point, but it is there. Um, not all the flow of three-digit acronyms there are today, but there is essentially the main ones, which are like S3, EC2, and a couple of others. Um, we, the history of the company is actually we're bootstrapped and have been for over, were, sorry, over, for over a decade. Um, we raised funding around about not two years ago from a company called Wonderco, and I can talk about that later. But if you wind yeah. back to the start, um, a couple of things were really interesting. One is Mixcloud is a company which does online audio hosting. So we specialize in one hour long shows. Um, they get uploaded to the service and other people will come and listen. And I say this because it's important for one reason technically is we deal with large amounts of storage and large amounts of bandwidth, the latter being the big problem. Um, it's not as bad as video, but as a bootstrap company getting into streaming, it's not a cheap way in. And what you've got is essentially three college grads who are like, we'll do this off our credit cards. And by off our credit cards, we mean we have no credit and we have no <laughs> savings because we haven't worked in a job for more than two years. So we, we basically got forced into the, this position of like, how can you actually make this work without with a shoestring budget? Otherwise, it's not going to. To be blunt, we put stuff on S3 for a while. We looked at the bill on month number two when we realized we'd be bankrupt, I think, by month number three. So we re-architected the whole thing several times through that. And actually, it was through necessity to survive that a lot of the early technical decisions were made. But what's from my point of view, it's been quite interesting is we've had this sort of pressure cooker there. And now we're actually coming out of the back, the back side of it. And we're, you know, for us, that stuff is now trivial. But I actually look at other companies who have backed themselves into the cloud services in particular and do not know how to architect their way out of it. Mm. Because to be quite honest, they, they don't have the skill set. Mm. They've never had the skill set. And they either have to pay the bills they have at the moment or find that skill set, and they're actually in an awkward position there. Um, the good news is, is cloud is quite competitive and the prices are coming down. The bad news is that most scale, well, a decent scale, you can either afford those people or um, it gets very expensive on, on those services. So it depends on what you need. I mean, it is very much dependent on which parts that you require. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, clearly it must, otherwise you wouldn't have continued down that path, but it must still be cheaper for you to have all of that infrastructure, that responsibility, the teams to kind of feed and water your infrastructure than paying uh, a third party for the, for the privilege of that. I, I mean, you say teams, it was two people. Like, No, I mean, up until about a year ago, it was yeah, two yeah, people. Like yeah. we, we hired Luca, um, DevOps, this admin. Um, we don't really prescribe internal title tools per se, but um, he's the guy who now deals with that. Mm -hmm. um, one and a half people that are dedicated to it, even though it's 20 million users, tens of gigabits of bandwidth every second, and it's growing multi petabytes of storage. And honestly, it's just automation, automation, automation. At that point, actually, it's more about extending it rather than maintaining it. There's a bit of both, there is, but it's, it's not huge teams, it's not armies of people. <laughs> right. And is it one of those kind of boomerang decisions that you keep coming back to and questioning yourselves on? Or have you been I mean, like, set on that direction and you know, you've kind of had that confidence it's the right path? There's a cost of moving anything. Yeah. Um, and there's always the grass is green on the other side. Um, so for us, the, it's the, um, the inertia keeping us there. And also, actually, is the grass actually green on the other side? We run the calculations like, no, it's more expensive on the other side. That, we, that I mean, almost as sure as death and taxes, we know it's more expensive on the other side. But you can be pretty sure that 
Um, every major cloud provider emails, phones me on a probably six weekly cycle at this point. Mm. Um, and it gets more and more senior every time. <laughs> uh, so those conversations always, that happens and the prices always drop. Mm. Um, but it still never equates. Um, and that's without consideration of the manpower needed to do that migration. Yeah. So um, the good news is we're actually fairly, we're not there yet, but we're pretty um, compatible with most clouds. Like, so we run, um, we run a, essentially our own version of S3 internally, so that API is well understood, so that is transposable. Um, we run Kubernetes internally, so we can literally bolt up and move. Not entirely, we're not completely in it, but it's not against the a quick project. If, we, if the data center burnt down, we could spin up right. I want to say with a bit of confidence, we haven't tested it yet, we could be up and running pretty quickly in other, other cloud providers. So. Oh. I actually wanted to ask you, because you said you got 20 million users now. MAU. So monthly active, yeah. Yeah. So how how did you get from zero to 20 million? This is one of the questions that I remember one of the startups asked at the billion pound event that we ran last year. And uh, they, they were saying they don't have a big advertising budget. You know. Genetics, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And they were asking this question to the panel. I don't know if you know, we organize this event once a year where we have a panel of experts uh, from unicorn companies and big corporates and they, um, a, a startup um, pitches a business problem and the panel advises them on that. We heard the advice that, because uh, we actually ran through that in a previous episode that the panel had, but I'd love to hear from you. How did you go from zero to, to 20 million without, you know, huge uh, advertising bus well, we uh, budget, I mean, I'm guessing? Like I think my, well, say my, the company's advertising budget for acquiring users across a lifetime has been 50 pounds. So. Is that, was that the free Google AdWords voucher? Yeah. It, was, it wasn't even a Google AdWords voucher. A couple of Google employees felt sorry for us. And um, it turns out they all get free credits to spend on AdSense every, uh, and so do Facebook as well. They give it to their employees to learn the product. So a bunch of them are like, we'll give you our freebies. So we, we tried that. Um, I wouldn't say we won't go there, and we're definitely doing a bit more of it at the moment, but it's not with regards to the product side, it's other areas of the business. Uh, but again, the budgets are in those number of digits. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, the honest answer is hard graft, right? Um, and the difference from zero to 100 to 1,000, think of it in terms of orders of magnitude, that's certainly how I do. Zero to 10 is like, go and call your mum and dad, like, and friends. You get what I'm saying here. Yeah. You could, and to be honest, if you bash, your phone book hard enough an email, you'll get to a hundred or a thousand mm -hmm. just through grunt work. Mm -hmm. Like, and you need that, like mm. you need to do that. And to be quite honest, when we we're in the early days, it was four of us. So it was myself um, doing the tech side with Sam Cook, who great friend still like 10 years on. Uh, Nico, who is just taken over as CEO of the company, um, who was an engineer by training, actually aeronautical engineering, mm. was became our designer. Um, we, we upgraded that later on, like he won't mind me saying that. And Nikhil, who was a maths major here, who was doing the BD side. And I can tell you now, what actually ended up happening is Nico did design, me and Sam built everything, and Nikhil just went out there and grafted the hell out of the business in terms of getting people to use it. It's just like, you will use this every single event, going to everybody, every phone book, every email. He did that while we try and like, essentially construct the plane on the way off the cliff. <laughs> like that's the only way yeah, of describing I it. Like, like um, and he did a really good job there. We helped out where we could, that got us to about a thousand. The nature of the product is um, people upload content, uh, people 
come and listen to the content. So an uploader, like a podcaster, will come along, upload their share, and then the first thing they're going to go and do is promote it. Like, yeah. Otherwise, like there's two types of audio creators out there, um, in my experience, is those who build it and expect people to come. Mm-hmm. And they generally are hobbyists or people with quite... Um, the, yeah, the ego. I, I don't know. There's those guys, and then there's other guys who are there. They build it and then pr- they promote the hell out of it. And we work kind of well for both. Um, we try and detect the quality of the content and promote good content and stuff like that. But in the early days, we didn't do any of that. But what we did get is a lot of people who are very good at promotion on the site. Um, they made the show, they uploaded it, and they're there to promote it. And they they will go and tell their friends to come listen to it, etc. So that gets that got us from a thousand to ten thousand, and there on in that sort of kicked off that flywheel. And what you find is people who promote shows bring listeners. Some of those listeners and more people who produce shows keep going. <laughs> Um, and we very much, I would say, fed off that throughout the, the life of the company and still do. So you got from 1,000 to 10,000 by people who, who uploaded the information that was all, were also promoting it. And did it just spiral? That doesn't stop the BD side. Like, I'm just saying that. Yeah. So the two things, think for us anyway, and we've never really done any deep analysis on this. It's more of a looking back with history and, like, mm. I want to say, like, experience of it, but, like... I don't know whether I'm experienced in this or not, but it's just like, I know what worked for us, or I know what we did, and I know we have survivor bias, so let's assume that worked once. <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't mean it'll always work, um, but I would definitely say the companies I've seen fail, and I've probably dealt with hundreds of startups where I've advised them and stuff, is like, they've just worked and done what, um, like I said, there's two audio creators, those who sit there and promote it, and those who build it and expect other people to come. And I've seen every single startup who's done that latter one I've seen fail. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure some win that way by a piece of press or something, but yeah. I guess a, a well-trodden bit of advice when you're starting to build a kind of uh, an audience or a community is to seek out the tastemakers and the influencers. Did you do any of that kind of stuff? Or I mean, that's, preci- that's precisely you? what we did. Yeah, so we naturally kind of reached out to influencers, but that's not what we would have called them. Um, so a lot of the original sort of people on the site were using these large file sharing sites such as like Mega Upload and stuff, et cetera, uh, which seem to have died a death since then. Um, and services like ours just came along and produced a, a better way to host specific media, which was audio in our case. So we very much attracted them and then provided them better tooling to promote their content. I have a question about that, actually, because yeah. when you um, try to get an influencer to start mm-hmm. using your, or whatever you call them these days, um, your tool, your platform, which, again, obviously raises your profile and hopefully membership, um, what was in it for them that made them join the platform or do uh, what you're asking them to do so exposure quite simply um right. so when people upload shows or create them as in, i mean sure you guys do with this podcast like generally when we talk to people and i talk to i think thousands of them at this point um there's two things they want um they want play counts uh and with some people are more sophisticated about that some people will just want massive amounts of play counts. Some people want very targeted. I want a thousand MBAs or 50 MBAs and it's not about the volume. And then you've got the second type who are after revenue. They want to make a living from it. So, and they're inherently linked, um, but actually they're slightly different use cases. And often the more revenue you put in there, advertising or there's subscription. There's, there's various channels to do that, tip jar, etc. And then you've got businesses coming in with it's just marketing. We'll make it up on the back end. Uh, for us, actually, in our audience, the money is um, 
it's becoming more of a thing. And actually there's some interesting business models there because of the scale a lot of them have. But initially in the early days, it was more about the track. It was about play counts. And to do play counts, you've got a strategy of put it on all everywhere. <laughs> that is your strategy. You don't pick a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, some people do, but the advisement I would say is go everywhere. Um, now what we're doing then is sort of later on, now what we're doing is we're focusing on the monetization side because a lot of these guys um, have massive audiences and some of them actually, um, what we're seeing is like, you probably read an A16Z, so Andreessen Horowitz blog yeah. post about 100 influencers, not 1,000. Like that is the mentality we've been acting under for the last five years and looking at how we can facilitate that because a lot of our um, top creators or medium or small even have a hundred or a thousand people who will turn up and listen to everything they do, oh. everything. And we have probably a hundred thousand to half million of people who, who are in that. We have a hundred or a thousand um, oh. followers. So actually there's some more interesting models over here, but the internet and the world is only really, the Western world in particular has only really evolved to accept micropayments and the support economy or whatever you want to call it in the last couple of years. Like mm. if we were to do that 10 years ago, yeah. Yeah. like we would never got off the ground. So. I'll ask a kind of a today question, but I do want to go back and carry on the conversation yeah, about sure. the early days. Um, you know, obviously we've seen a real explosion in the popularity of podcasting and on demand, you know, kind of audio and spoken word and, yeah. and just, you know, those kinds of content in general. So is your competitor set the same as it's always been? Or are you seeing kind of people appear from like the sidelines that you haven't typically come across, you know, because you see so many platforms now kind of moving into that space. Yeah, I I find this a really interesting question because I've been asked this numerous times oh. and I don't know whether audio is exploding in the same way. Like I actually, I mean, I'm not saying it's not growing. Yeah. I, like I, we believe in it. We fundamentally built a business then. It is growing. But it feels like everyone's suddenly paying attention to this thing which was a behemoth at the side mm. already. I think it was already a gigantic market, but the way a lot of people explain it is, it's gone from zero to this. It's like, yeah. guys, like we, if we measure this in terms of revenue, radio has eclipsed sales of media for decades. Like, and Spotify and stuff are, are catching up. But if you look at the whole ecosystem on the market, radio still is a monster. Mm. Like, um, and then if you look at podcasting, it's like wind back 10 years, like the iPod was for podcasts originally, that's hence the name. Um, and there was audio and all that as well, but they had podcast directories at Behemoth as well. And it, it's it's not the sexy thing people talk about or wasn't then, and now it is becoming that. I, it has grown as a market. And actually, to be honest, I'm talking about traffic here. I'm not talking about the size of the user base there. What's really interesting is the monetization has now swung onto it. Oh. Um, and advertisers are like, oh, we can do that as well. And uh, so the, the revenue is now catching up there. Yeah. Um, which is super interesting because it's fragmented, fragmented and broken in so many ways. Um, so we're seeing that as a, a shift. We're not actually seeing the user numbers on a global scale. They're going up. They are massively going up. But then we're like, it's more about people waking up to this. Yeah. Uh, but with regards to your competitor question, I mean, look, we have competitors all over the place. Like, um, it's it's a really interesting question because there are 50 to 100 companies who do this. 
Um, and not only do this, we have every behemoth out there entering or in this space already. So um, it's the ongoing joke in our, in our company. It was for a while. Like we're the bootstrap company and everybody around us has half a billion in, in like investment. So if you look at who's in the audio space, we have Audible with Amazon. We have Spotify. We have SoundCloud with 500 and something million in funding. We have Pandora. We have Deezer. We have Apple. Like everybody there has close to a billion dollars to go into this or is already in there and it's it's hard uh, but then equally you look at what they're all fighting over and a lot of them are going down the single track route so the the, the traditional like um all you can eat 10 pounds a month um track 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 uh, it's a track model and they're basically commoditized at this point they've fundamentally commoditized um listening um but where we're at is because we have that creator, we have this human element. So one of the things we firmly believe is that human producers, radio hosts, DJs, etc., can produce a better listening experience than a track list. Right. Maybe that track list could be constructed by an algorithm or a human, but there's something about that human talking, mixing, blending, which is why radio survived yeah. generation after generation after generation. Like the wireless came along and um, TV came along and radio's still there. It survived in the car, but it's still there at the home. And then the internet came along. I mean, TV's suffered because of um, online, Netflix and co, et cetera. Um, but TV's still there, but you know, it's, it's in decline. Radio's still there. Yeah. <laughs> it's transitioned some of it to podcasting, so it's gone from live to an on-demand experience, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. And one of the sort of special things about it is um, as I'm sure somebody listening to this will will realize, they're doing other things. They listen whilst they're reading something, or they listen while they're running, they're jogging, they're commuting, whatever. It's a parallel medium. So you can, it's, audio is the only medium I'm aware of where you can do it and do something else simultaneously. So the time is not cannibalized by yeah. other, men, other factors. Yeah. Um, but as I say, we have these competitors all over the listening space, but nobody's doing this, very few companies are doing this UGC long form dedicated experience so that's really where i think we're sort of unique um doesn't mean we're not fighting over ears and time but the same way you could argue that youtube is fighting tv or youtube is also fighting like the guardian as a newspaper that's eyeballs being fought over it's a different type of fight um so it's very hard to define and it's really interesting particularly talk to vcs about this because they're they either get it instantaneously or they're like (laughs) <laughs> you mean you have no competitors? It's like, well, we kind of have a hundred and zero at the same time. Like, um, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us a bit more actually about investment, and because I think the first decade of your business, yeah, first decade of your business, you didn't, you didn't get any investment. Was it because you didn't want it, or was it because people didn't want to give it to you? A bit of both. Um, like, so back in the day, we went, we we went out to raise funding several times. Like, and I mean, like first year, year three, year five year seven, year eight. Um, and like, certainly within Europe, there were, the VC community seems a bit, or at the time felt very comfortable and mm. they weren't very competitive. They weren't fighting over each other. Mm. Um, it's less so now. Um, and also at the time it was, it was kind of one of these things like, um, phrase I used earlier when we, we were chatting was like, nobody got fired for uh, buying IBM. It's kind of like everyone got fired for investing in music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you don't do that. Mm. Like that's the way you lose a lot of money. That was kind of the rhetoric back in the day. And what's interesting is since then, you've seen 
a lot of these multi-billion dollar companies come out, like you've seen all the majors, major um, technology companies, I think with the only exception of Facebook, have massive music players. You've got Google, you've got Amazon, you've got Apple. That's three of them mm-hmm. um, straight off the bat. We've got Spotify and co. Um, so everyone's just, just like, don't go there. But now that all those players are out, everyone's seen that Spotify is one of the biggest unicorns of the uh, this probably decade, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's £10 a month subscription. I think the last user numbers I saw was 100 million subscribers. That's a billion dollars a month in revenue. That's not too shabby. (laughs) um, And I think what we saw is that certainly what I've seen in Europe is a lot of the VCs are like, what? Because they all met them and they were like, nah, like Mm -hmm. biggest thing we missed. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that time and time again. Um, Or I've sort of heard so many VCs say that that that's the one which got away. Um, So we've kind of seen that warm up great in Europe. But we went over to the US to raise or actually they met us, we met them. It took a... It came about in a very serendipitous way where we'd actually talked to them previously before they set up the firm. Mm. Then they reached out to us as we were just yeah. starting to go in again. And uh, we met a guy um, called Anthony, who's one of the partners over there. He very quickly introduced us to the rest of the firm. So um, Anne, um, Jeffrey, um, Sujay and Chenley, who are all the partners. And we, to be honest, just got really well. They're a really interesting bunch. Um, they are mainly operators, not money people. Yeah. They are VCs, but like just to give you a history of some of their backgrounds, like um, Anthony was a music manager, uh, so he knows the music space really well, right. but then did a load of very early investments in large companies. You you will recognize every single one of them, but I won't mention them now. Um, Chen Lee and Sujay were very, very senior at Dropbox early days, I think first 20 or 30 employees. Uh, so Chen Lee was CPO there. Sujay was COO slash CFO mm-hmm. uh, right up to recently. Um, Jeffrey and Anne were um, DreamWorks crew, as in Jeffrey founded DreamWorks, ran Disney for a bit as well. So they've kind of got this really, really interesting blend for us. And there's Andrew as well, who's the lawyer there, who was actually was general counsel over um, DreamWorks as well. Um, and what's really interesting about them, we've got the legal ang- angle with Andrew, which is yeah. music licensing is a big thing. We've got the media folks, which is Anne and Jeffrey. Uh, so they really understand copyright in media. They mm. know it from the film world and a lot of that translates to music. Just like the idea that you have to invest in this content to be able to yeah. um, essentially monetize it. And then we've got Anthony who understands the music and labels. Then we've got Chenley and Sujay who have come from the tech world. So we've got the, kind of this perfect storm of media, tech, licensing in a VC firm, which honestly you just don't get, get, you don't get no, a fit like that. You don't get, get that. that. No. And usually you don't get six people who have been operated, yeah. who, operators at IPO scale companies, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, You're getting you, much more than just a check. Yeah. You're getting that. Support. No, we, yeah. I mean, look, we do phone calls with them every week, yeah. every fortnight. Right. And like their insight is invaluable. Um, so for us, that was like, yeah, this is the firm. We How need long to have they been involved with your company then? I'd say two years at this point. Oh, okay. Like, well, okay. So, uh, so is licensing a big issue for you? If it's, is it mostly user generated stuff you're putting up? Is it more just compliance with the stuff um, that's going up on the platform? Or? It's compliance. So yeah. um, it's a huge, um, yeah. I wouldn't say issue is not the right phrasing for it. It's more of a, it's something we have to solve. Yeah. Like it's not a problem, it's just the nature of the work. Um, so we have to have licenses for major label content um, because the nature of the work is like, we've got two ways we approach this problem. And I'd say it's um, it's one of the things the company did right from day one is back way, 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 way back. We're like, we wanna be licensed. So DJs naturally don't play their own music. 
they can't generate that much music to then put in their shows on that frequency. So they play other people's music. Um, there's two approaches to this. There's the takedown approach where you're just like, right, we'll be the pipeline, we'll take the content, and then we'll delete anything which either we notice or somebody reports. But fundamentally, you're just kind of at that point accepting that stuff happens, right? And that is not, doesn't sit well with me, that there's like a copyright infringement there and we're just like blanket and ignoring it. So what we did is in the very early days, we try, uh, tried to do licenses with the majors, but they just wouldn't pick up the phone. So what we did is, because we, we were too small and fair, fair enough. So we actually went and licensed under PRS, PPL, all the, yeah. the radio license schemes, which dictated some of the shape of the service. And so we, we essentially licensed that way in the early days. And then from about two years ago, we swapped, switched over to direct licenses. So we're now licensed with, all the major labels globally with like Merlin, so that's Universal, Sony, um, Warner, Merlin, and then there's all the publishing side as well. There's there's an army of stuff to do there. And uh, yeah. yeah. I had a taste of it in the mid 2000s because at O2 we did a deal with Loudi yep. back in the day. Um, I think they were ODT before that with Peter Gabriel, weren't they? It kind of evolved from there somewhere. And that was just so complicated. And yeah. uh, the amount of services in the mid 2000s that sprung up that were quite innovative around music, but as you say, just failed because of the, the complexity around licensing. My all time favorite was Turntable FM, which I just absolutely love. I loved. remember those guys really well. And people that yeah. nobody will be rolling their eyes because I always go on about Turntable FM. It was just, you know, it was a service that actually made me discover and buy new music because this was obviously before the time yeah, yeah. of Spotify and stuff like yeah. that. But they just got killed by the labels. Yeah, they they shot themselves in the foot a few times as well. Like they were, so we were actually back in the day. We saw them come out, like, and we were monitoring them daily to see what their traffic numbers were. They, this is a really interesting one for me because we we monitor all the competitors, and back in the day you could get a very good read on news numbers remotely. Like, and we literally saw them doing a hockey stick curve on their yeah. dailies and also on the monthlies. And then we saw the moment where the hockey stick stopped and believe it or not, we actually built that product. Right. We had the product built, ready to ship to market. And we saw their numbers just take a tank on the dailies. Within about seven days, the viral effect wore off and it just was going downhill. You couldn't see it in the monthlies and the press is still running the story that this is the biggest thing ever. And we're like, yeah. no, we're gonna hold, we're gonna actually shoot the product because they're dying. We can see it happening. And let's try and analyze why. And the viral structure of it collapsed essentially. And I think we knew it before they did, which was super interesting. So we actually saw there, what you, what you see when you observe these things is you see an exponential curve and then you see a plateau and then an exponential decay. And when you analyze those numbers, what you end up with is this curve going up, plateau, and then a curve going down, and it settles on your hardcore user base, which is your highly retained users. And you've shed all the, the people who are just like there to see what was happening yeah, or like yeah, the soft yeah. users. Um, so we. It's interesting when we kept a very close eye on those guys in the day, and I still think we might do something around that now. I think something not a lot of people know about you, James, that you are quite a music fan, and you you love bands and help bands, and yeah, very... well, I'm trying to. It's a, yeah, it's a small feather in my cap. Yeah, I'm not sure very, how successful very it is. Diverse but, yeah. and... Many feathers. <laughs> yeah. It's getting quite a heavy hat. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to. Uh, it's, well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm I'm learning a lot. I'm just trying to uh, negotiate um, a licensing deal to release a, um, some John Peel sessions for a band. Um, okay. Which is actually not too complicated now because um, AIM have a framework agreement yep. with the BBC. But going back and trying to unpick historical publishing rights and record label deals is not for the faint-hearted. But 
That's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> and yeah, that is one I cannot talk about at length. And yeah. No, um, but yeah, so um, no, it's really interesting. Um, so the final historical question before we kind of move on to like what's happening to the, the company today yeah, sure. is, and I think Adelina touched on this, is like um, you didn't have a CEO for a very long time. So how no. does that work? How does that work? <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, honestly, I think it was one of the unique things which worked better than having a CEO. Like we have one now. So Nico took over this year, 2020. Um, so we've done over a decade without one. And everyone who looks at that, literally, including the VCs are like, that'll never work. I'm like, well, you said that five years, we're here now and the numbers are still up. Like, yeah. Um, so look back to, there's essentially three three major founders. So me, Nico, and Nickel. And I say major because Sam was part-time for the first few years. So three of us went in full-time very early on. Um, so we have three directors there. Like, and we still do. We still have three directors in the company, which is me, Nico, and Nickel. And what I find super interesting is like we're over a decade on and the core founding team actually is still here. Like Nickel's going to be taking a step away this year, but actually a decade with this, all the core team, actually Sam as well was around for 10 years. Like people stick it out in this company. Um, and you've got three people with three actually quite diverse personalities and three very um, diverse views on the world who are aligned on the same mission. And we spent a lot of time trying to ruthlessly align. And there was a lot of arguments over minutia, which didn't matter. But actually, as long as those arguments are confined within that three, they do bleed out occasionally. Um, it allows us to actually evolve our thinking very rapidly to an optimal solution no matter what the problem is, whether it be classic one is advertising versus revenue, revenue versus traffic, right? Growth versus revenue. And you end up with one person. So Nickel um, later on was running community and still is running community and um, commercial. And now Ben's taking over commercial, another character within the business. But um, so Nickel would represent the commercial view. I'd represent the product view. Nico would be operations at this point. So you'd end up with these three debates. And what you don't have is a dictatorship. <laughs> of one person is like, we are going that way because I'm the CEO, you end up with actually a, a democracy, essentially, mm -hmm. and 2v1. As long as you get all three t people to the position where, look, I'm out voted two to one, I trust you guys, we're going that way, mm -hmm. and you execute ruthlessly against whatever that decision is, you can actually end up with a far more balanced set of opinions there. So that, I mean, that's fundamentally how it worked. Um, and I would say, I would say it only worked because of the nature of the other two people, oh. like, and the fact that the three of us have the utmost respect for each other. Yeah. Um, I would not do it as a group of two. And one of the things you said that really struck me as well, if I may, and I, I saw Amazon has this company value actually, which is essentially, like you said, execute ruthlessly on whatever your, your decision is. Don't just kind of half-heartedly say yes to a decision and then you keep trying to sabotage it. And that's, I think sounds like that's the core value that you're, team of three or four was using when you were running the company or well, you have been running for the last 12 years yeah i mean look i'm sure everyone says oh you're dragging your feet on this slightly but realistically we got on with it like, yeah um, and that, that's i think that's an important point right once you have decided we are doing this going ahead with it rather than keep trying to sabotage that. I think that's really important because I've seen this in other startups where some of the other founders were kind of half-hearted half about it. And then they didn't, they kind of said yes in the meeting, but didn't really fully commit to it. And then it just went down the drain because they weren't really committing. It kept trying to sabotage the decision as it were. Yeah. And I think 
the thing which comes back to me and the thing which somebody said to me, which was one of the most profound things in this area, I kind of realized um, a couple of years ago is I had the fortune to meet um, somebody called Chris Cox, who was the head of product at Facebook at the time. This is a couple of, uh, about five years ago. He's one of the, probably the best product people I've ever met uh, by a, what, a mile, right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. look at what he's done. And um, I asked him the question, like, how do you guys agree on stuff? Because you're not agreeing on the minutiae we have to deal with with our user base. You're literally changing the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was during the, I mean, look, Facebook is still growing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, he just said something really interesting. It's like, we talk it out until it's over. Like, as in we talk about it and talk about it until it's unanimous. That's yeah. how we resolve stuff. Yeah. Um, and if somebody, if you've got somebody on your team who is, you're paying them a, a bunch of money and they're there because you know what, they are good at what they do. Mm -hmm. And if they disagree, there's something you don't understand. Yeah. Like, so you just need to talk, walk, figure this out until everyone is like, yeah, we got this. And it might take weeks, it might take days, it could take minutes, it doesn't matter. Get that out and make sure that, and this is something I've tried to take into my team, is like, I don't, I don't care if you disagree with me. I care that you disagree, but I don't care if you want to argue with me, that's all good, we're good. I'd rather that than you silently sit there and nod your head. Yeah. Um, and th that causes a lot of tension. like. Oh, a massive amount of tension, but you know what? That's not a bad thing. Like it's it's draining for some and others are like, um, I don't want to be here, this is too stressful, but actually, you know what? You get to a better place. Uh, the ends is better than the journey. And that to me is just the way to do it. Like. I'm just squirming in my chair. <laughs> You're like, this, this is, is all wrong. This is, no, 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 this is so good because this is actually a course I'll be running in March with an MD who was overriding his, his um, experts' suggestions or counter arguments from fear of getting it wrong. And, and we're actually, we have a little, a little three hour session we're gonna do in Cambridge on this called, I'm an expert yet my executives keep overriding my decisions. And it's exactly this, and I'm, I just love it, the fact that you said it, because that's exactly what we were, we were talking it's, about. And I'm sure when my team hear this, they'll be like, Matt overrides us the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a, such a fine balance. Like, it's the thing I, I love and really struggle with at the same time. It's like, you have to hear everybody out. But then at some point it's like, yeah. are we just in deadlock? Do we have to go? Mm. And that is the point where it's the, this weird thing about you have to hear everyone. And then ideally you get everyone on the same page because everyone has valid opinions. Otherwise, honestly, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, but how do you get people to align? And that's a personality thing on everybody's account. And, but if it's 95% overridden, you've got the wrong people in the room. Mm. Yeah. Or, and that might include yourself. Like, mm. um, it's not right. Like, and it's something is wrong and it could be you. As in, I mean, me as the executive, right? It doesn't yeah. mean it's them. Yeah. Um, or there's something broken down in trust, or there's something broken down, something's gone wrong, like massively. Mm -hmm. and I, there is a time though, where you do just have to draw a line and say, I'm sorry, we are moving on, like, and point heard, like, yeah. And we, we've, we've gone backwards and forwards on that so many times over the years, like. So is there any telltale signs from your perspective where you have to draw the line and you kind of realize you're in deadlock? Um, I think the interesting one for me with this is technical stuff, like just go deep in. So I actually still code, um, which most people find shocking. Um, 
like um i probably get about half a day in a week give or take at this point um and that's pushing stuff to production as well um so i find that's really interesting because for those of you who don't know like technical stuff the, the way we operate and the way i think most healthy teams operate is one person codes it usually with loads of collaboration we open a pull request and that's time for review before it goes in right and what i kind of find interesting on the engineering side is that actually this stuff is I don't want to use the word formalized, but there's just like accepted best practices and there's time to overrule them. And the time like we're in an outage, time to just yeah. start shooting from the hip. We need to get this one over the line and get the people with the best shots to get in there and get it done and review it as fast as you can. But most of the time it's like, okay, here here we go, right? Here's a, here's a change. And then sometimes it's deep architectural and it's like, actually that stuff matters because you backed yourself into a corner. Other times it's like, this is just minutiae. You're mm -hmm. arguing over the name of something. Yeah. And I think the thing which um, we used as analogy in the early days is, is something called bike shedding, which has got two different, two different phrases for it. Uh, it means two different things, but both of them kind of apply to different areas. Um, so one of them is like, you're building the bike shed like you choose the paint color, basically. Like, um, and that essentially means like, if you're doing the code, like we only, I'll, I'll correct you on minor details or vice versa. And that's mainly, it's broken. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if it's actually small details, which immaterial doesn't matter. Like whoever's writing it gets priority. Um, and then the second one is, um, why this sometimes comes in is like if a bunch of ministers order a nuclear power station to be built, they're not going to they're not going to argue about the main thing about how the reactor works. What they're going to argue about is the color of the bike shed because that's the only thing they know about. <laughs> like, <laughs> and this is like exec management one hundred and one, right? Yeah. So. I think there's, so sometimes we use that as a, a negative version of the word bike shedding. It's like exec are coming in to basically just to push around the corners and they ain't going to argue about the, how the, the thing you're spending the $10 billion on yeah. is working. They just want to have a fight. Yeah. What the hell are you doing? Get rid of it. Like, and it's about reminding exec that, look guys, let that go. <laughs> like yeah. it's not worth it. Um, so for us, it's it's about that. And that honestly is one of the mentalities we've sort of set in place. Both of those versions of the same word, it's a bad choice of word, but it does work yeah. to kind of keep people in check about what to, what's worth arguing about, what's not. And a lot of the time we just realized that actually um, people only argue about the minutia because of, often they wanna feel heard. And the biggest problems actually have the clearest solutions. There's no debate about it. It's like we need X amount of revenue to be able to pay the bills this month. How do we get it? Okay, done. But the fine details were actually A versus B as two options. There's, they're about the same. It's opinion and therefore everyone argues over it. Yes. And it doesn't matter, just pick one and go with it. People argue about their own ideas as facts because they're stuck in this emotional part of the brain where they're so attached to their own idea, they think it's fact and it's, it's a universal truth. And then when you take a five minute break and you kind of maybe restart the meeting or something and you go back to it, you, they sometimes realize, actually, no, yeah, why am I arguing about the yeah. color of the shed? So, yeah, we did, we, the other one I tried early on, which sort of worked with some people, but not, it's like, if you don't bring facts, as in facts, facts, numbers, yeah. we'll go with my opinion because I've been here the longest, I know the user base the best, which is not meant to be like I overall, it's like, 
it forces them to go and get the numbers. It's like, okay, now we're in a good place to make a decision. Um, okay, so moving kind of as, I guess, more to kind of current times. Um, you know, I think, obviously, you guys as a founding team have been together for a long time, right? Like a decade. 11 years, yeah. Yeah, so you must have a really good, strong kind of company culture around that. So how have you kind of, you know, um, coped with scaling the business and adding quite a lot of employees in a fairly short space of time. You know, how have you, have you adjusted to having that kind of tight knit group for such a long time? Um, it's been difficult to be honest. Um, had some great, great, great people along the way. And actually we've had really good retention of employees. Um, so, I mean, I can t talk more about my team than the wider company. Um, so my team's like t mid twenties to 30, give or take at this point. Um, and it was about eight, two years ago, a bit, bit, a bit more than that. So it's about tripling in two years. Um, honestly, like, I think one thing we did get right is on the hiring front, we've gone more, way more senior than most people would hire. Uh, so we've hired a lot of people who are high trajectory, um, quite senior employees or the kind of person who are like, um, very, very good at self-learning, um, and not a bunch of junior people, um, with one senior person, we've kind of kept that ratio, um, over on that side. Not, not everyone is massively senior, but it's, it's, it's definitely skews the average that way. Um, and this is in the belief that I kind of believe that for two junior salary, you can get a senior and that senior can output about three to four X the amount of work, um, as two juniors and also can probably generate about one tenth of the technical debt. Like the ratios are just way more in your favor. So if you got, if you haven't got very much cash, don't aim for headcount, aim for the right headcount. So we've right. kind of been forced in that direction. And I think that was actually quite a, um, a wise decision early on. Um, looking back, I can't say it was, there was a bit of forethought, but it's mainly like, I don't want to work with that guy. I want to work with that one. Let's get that one. Um, I also put a lot of the credit down to that to one of the, the other co-founders, Sam Cook, who um, left the company about a year ago. Um, and we're still great friends. Like we still, like he's fantastic. Um, and he was my counterpart. So me and him ran product essentially between the two of us. Um, and that just meant that there was somebody there who was such a safe pair of hands. Like you work with somebody for eight years, oh. it, it, like one look or one like phrase. And I know that entire department is dealt with like an entire group of people. So that helped a lot, which meant we could divide and conquer very quickly to get the growth of people into shape in, in certain areas. And actually there's a few really, really good hires. We just brought in between the two of us, um, just through sifting through a shed ton of CVs. <laughs> there weren't people we knew beforehand. We weren't hiring oh, friends. Weren't. Okay. We were just sifting through a lot of CVs. Cause that was going to be the question. Brutal with it. The, the, you know, the question that popped into my head when you said you went senior, you know, obviously you're narrowing the funnel, I guess, at that stage. Hell of a lot, yeah. But so does that, were you just prepared to kind of go through the additional time it would take to find the right people because you were focused on that quality outcome? Yeah, and I think we're just stubborn. Like, um, we just were like, no, not, that's not working. Like, and that we were very, very, we were stubborn at the hiring stage, not after we'd hired them. Yeah. Um, I think we also just targeted the right people. Like, um, my sort of two favorite things to sort of think about during hiring are, um, one is, um, has this person done a startup? Has this person failed at a startup? Do they understand what that means? Um, that will probably give you the right attitude. Second question is, which is something I've been thinking about at the moment is, um, when you're hiring people, say the ship is sinking, 
is this the person will go be like, buy out of here, told you so, or this kind of person will grab a bucket and start bailing. Like, you want the latter everywhere. Like, and that's not because we're planning on sinking, but you want to not be worrying that the rest of the team doesn't have your back in all circumstances. Yeah. Um, and look, for some people, work-life balance is different, and that comes across in several different ways. Um, it's often like, you know what, site's gone down at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Happened about two months ago, and I have no questions that the sysadmin team will be up and dealing with it as fast as I am. <laughs> like, yeah. it's about finding those people. Um, and you can tell that pretty quickly. Like, and like, and I, I mentioned sysadmin because like um, Luke on my team, fantastic, has kids, has family. Everyone has priorities outside of work and that comes first. But equally, like, you need to make sure that everyone is there as a team, looks after each other and in their work life puts that first. It's kind of, it's hard to explain where that line is, but it's definitely there. And you mentioned that have they started and failed at the startup? It's not a requirement, but a, my God, that's a big green flag. Like, yes, so that's, that, okay, so that's good because, you know, in, in the UK, we often think that employers see you as a failure if you failed at the startup whilst in america they wear it as a badge of honor and i was talking about this with someone on the weekend actually and i i thought actually uh, employers like you are smarting up to that and i'm glad to hear it but what was it that made you think about that as one of the good green flags for someone to work with you i mean it's like the people who it's just the things you see from people right it's the um, I, I can't say why because I can't really think of why. It's just mm. like I'm not bothered about somebody who tried and failed. Mm. Like I want somebody who tried. Yes. Like um, yeah. I'm not bothered about um, somebody who failed and hide. Well, I am bothered about somebody who fails and hides it because then they can't learn. Yeah. But and honestly, like people who are have done a startup and succeeded aren't on the job market, and you ain't getting them on the job market for the most part mm. <laughs> uh, because. Yeah, <laughs> they've done pretty well, some of them. So often it's that tried and failed is more applicable. And yeah, if other people aren't hiring them, we'll take them. Yeah. Like, I'm not bothered about that. Like, that's great. Uh, it's about having the attitude to do two things. One is like, they're genuinely way more self-motivated. They take initiative. Like, it's just hands off. Like, it's just like, you know what? There's a problem. They're coming with a solution to the problem rather than here's five more problems. Yes. <laughs> um, it might not be the right one, but at least they're coming on the positive side, not the negative side, if that makes sense. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. just like, that's what you want. As any manager, what you want is your employees to come with a solution and a problem and not hide the problem and then come with a solution, but just be like, here's this. I think we can do A, B, C, and D. Mm. It's like, okay, well, that's a lot easier to deal with. Mm. Um, and then it's about guidance to get people to the right thing. And also people who just... The nice thing about startups is often, not if they've failed, but often they've tried lots of things. So they know full well that you don't try something, it succeeds. And they also, the thing I, I fear the most is people who try and, I wouldn't say fail, but yeah, they, they try and it doesn't work out. Mm. And then they start putting the lipstick on the pig and pretending it worked. Oh. And it's just like, this is just toxic. Like, yeah. as soon as you get to that point where people can't openly look at the data and they're celebrating it, Celebrate trying, celebrate launching it, celebrate you had the shot. Mm. Don't celebrate you won when it's actually lost. Mm. Because that way you just, you, everything's a victory and nobody learns. Mm. And therefore you never evolve 
and you never win, right? So, yeah. and I just generally see those traits out of small companies because there's nowhere to hide. Yes. And out of big companies, you can do that and that will get you a career progression. Yes. Like, <laughs> so so it's just like, <laughs> and this is why I'm not employable. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. so that that it's that, and it's not like it's not a green flag, but it's no, yeah, sorry, it's not good, the it's, green flag. It's it's like it helps you like, understand the attitude, right? It's like that, and it sounds like you're you're recruiting for attitude, which is what because we had a guest on our show a few months ago who was talking about this. That especially startups need to recruit for attitude rather than for experience, and um, it sounds like you're naturally doing that. I don't know if you got advice uh, to do that, but you just kind of saw it. And that's, that's fabulous to see because one of the things I have seen with a lot of Cambridge startups is that they hired PhDs and people only with a PhD just because it makes the VCs look good or they think, well, because they themselves, the CTO has a PhD and they feel that they have to have other PhDs and they almost simulate um, academia into the company, which doesn't work. No, academia is like the worst thing to bring into a technology. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, it's, yeah, it's not good. I can tell you what half the guys on my, guys, I say guys, I mean people, sorry. It's a pet peeve of mine, that one. Um, half the people on my team have in terms of qualifications. I can tell you up until about a year ago, last time I looked, we had more people without computer science degrees on the software side than those with. Mm. Like, um, yeah. But it matters the yield, it matters the productivity. No, not, how is the degree helping you? And that's the thing you get, which is lovely. Certain areas, necessary. Mm. Uh, most areas, not. Well, that's like, the thing. Is it necessary or not? And that's the thing, just no. labeling someone. I just can't see that. I think being. the only field I'm seeing it in right now where I'd be like, yeah, you've got a leg up with a PhD is ML or AI. Mm. Like if you're going into that, actually PhD is kind of relevant. But equally, it's the, the information is so democratized and available now that a lot of the best people I'm seeing just started hacking like, and just got on with it and then learned the papers, the research, the science, because they're bright people. But just because this is, really fires me up, right? So um, this is the thing that I think a lot of tech startup employers don't get is the fact that you have a guy, guy or a gal with the attitude of wanting to look for that information yeah, and the initiative, they'll find it. But you have a PhD who's not perhaps might have it in his or her research, but doesn't have the attitude of wanting to solve it and says to you, we have this problem. You have, you'll get a lot more out of that first yeah. person than the PhD person. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking yeah. about. I mean, so I've got to tread carefully here with what I say, like um, my partner has a PhD and is like teachers uh, Imperial, uh, <laughs> no, I'm so, not but she would no, no, no. I mean, this from a personal being like in trouble later on. But um, she, people like her are super bright. Absolutely, there is definitely places um, for them. And, like, hmm. but within a startup, like um, the two, literally the two areas I see it in software, where academia has just let software engineers down, mm -hmm. is version control. They just they have folders still. What is that about? <laughs> like, and it's just like, there is like 101, the rest of the industry woke up to about 20 years ago. Mm. And I don't understand why that hasn't progressed into that. And it's, this, is like, this is like the first thing we have to teach anyone coming in from either mm. academia or grad. Not all of them, but um, a lot of them. And the second one is like tests. Mm. They're like, it worked once. I'm like, <laughs> great. <laughs> we have to do this a million times with all that variation. Can yeah. we check the rest of it? Yeah. And it's, 
It doesn't mean that they're not fantastic, but just that is very hard to kickstart over because they've got five years of baggage there where they've never, mm. they assume that they're building on good foundations and the foundations are not necessarily the best thing for here. That, that's where we see the danger is like, and that's the, yeah. the, the trick of it works in theory where it worked once it's too it's just like but when you yeah when you when you test that out against real life simulations then you start discovering there's a different picture yeah. sometimes i mean matt thanks so much for coming in today um i mean we've covered a lot of ground um <laughs> and i think it's I been think, an adventure <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think what's been really interesting for me and hopefully the listeners is the fact that you've done some things kind of maybe look you know that doesn't go along the kind of the, the traditional way that people think about startups and, I think, and obviously it's been successful for you so we've learned an awful lot and hopefully the listeners will as well that was such an interesting chat i lost track of time what did you learn james yeah i, I mean we covered so much but i think well a, a theme i think in a lot of matt's answers to our questions was just like how scrappy you need to be. Um, you know, if you're a startup without a lot of money, it was really interesting, you know, listening to Matt describe how they just found solutions to problems. You know, one of those examples being the fact that they just couldn't afford to pay AWS for their hosting infrastructure. So they just decided to build it themselves. Mm. Yeah, for me, it was really interesting to hear with a grand, huge, enormous 50 pound marketing budget they got from zero to 20 million monthly active users. So that, that was quite impressive. I really liked hearing how he built it first with family and friends. And then after they got to about 100 people, family and friends, it spiraled to 1,000 people because pe people clearly were enjoying it. And then how they started going to influencers and, and being out there promoting it, promoting it, promoting it, talking about it. I'm starting to worry about all these poor people that have marketing degrees. You know, they're, they're going to be all out of work, aren't they? Um, <laughs> So, and then we moved on and, you know, we talked a little bit about when they actually did start to fundraise, you know, some of the challenges that they faced, the attitude that, you know, VCs weren't interested in investing in music services. You know, I think this was probably predates Spotify's success, you know, which has now given VCs that feeling that they missed out on a really big opportunity. But obviously back before that, you know, when Matt was uh, out there going on the circuit, really struggling to get engagement and ended up having to go to the US, which... Sounds like they just found the dream team. They were just a great match in terms of their investors and their business. For me, it was really interesting to hear him talk about how they execute ruthlessly on whatever decision they reached. And that was really important. I loved hearing him talk about Chris Cox from Facebook, um, who mentioned that you have to talk things out until it's over. And if you have an expert in your team, if they disagree, there's something you clearly don't understand and you should be talking about it. Um, and, and talking about the, when, when do you move on? When do you realize that you're stuck in the deadlock and you're going around in circles and you have to start moving on and making a decision? Um, it was really interesting hearing all of those, um, those points as well. And I, I really agree with them. And it was nice to hear an executive really thinking those as well. Thanks very much once again to Matt for coming on the show today. Um, the show was produced by Cole Homer. And thanks to Carbon Orange for our brand design and Speechmatics, whose technology powers our show transcriptions. Don't forget to connect with us on social to suggest a guest or tell us what you think of this episode. You can find us at Prevail Podcast on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. 